Long before steroids and multi-million dollar contracts, there was a truly independent ball club. A bunch of guys who were hopeless dreamers looking for a second chance. In short, the best kind of people. When we first heard about Bing Russell, there was this buzz about, well, who's Bing Russell? And he was in the Magnificent Seven, and he's the sheriff from Bonanza. My dad got killed 126 times, I think it was. Why would Bing Russell come to Portland? Bing was out to prove that independent baseball could work. I think we charged Bing $500 for the franchise. So we started from scratch. We're going to have open trials. Show us for the fools that we are coming from Hollywood. You'd expect maybe 40 or 50 people to show up, and I think 300 showed up. Guys who drove, you know, clear across the country and sacrificed this or sold this just for the chance to come and try out for the team. I don't care, you know, about the money. I just want to play ball. There was no press handlers. There was no groomed image. There was just these furry, hairy, funny, great bunch of guys. And the things that happened on the field were absolutely insane. Organized baseball didn't like Bing, and they did everything they could to make sure Bing didn't win. He couldn't stand them. They couldn't stand him. Portland is the greatest baseball city in the world. We broke attendance records in the entire minor leagues that year. We really emphasized fun. The fans loved it. I've never seen a ball team and fans behave the way they did with the Mavericks. He created the most successful team in the history of minor league baseball. This is going to be magic. Hello and welcome to the Nomcast the Netflix original movie podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Morgan. You can follow the show at NomCastPod on Twitter and Instagram, or you can follow me at Jokes on Drew. All right, I hope everyone is staying safe out there the best you can. I mean, I hope your friends and families are okay. There's a lot going on right now, a lot of frustration bubbling over, and rightly so, but I hope we can make it through the other side a better and more just and understanding world. I urge people who are at a loss of why this is happening right now to check out Ava DuVernay's excellent Netflix documentary, 13th, that lays out all the links in the chain of racial inequalities that have occurred since slaves were freed with the 13th Amendment, including up to present time. So check that out when you have a moment if you're feeling at a loss for what's going on right now. But in the worst and most awkward of segues, speaking of documentaries, <laughs> this episode is a look at one of my favorite Netflix documentaries, The Battered Bastards of Baseball. It might have come out many years ago at this point, but with the renewed interest in sports documentaries after The Last Dance took over cable for several weeks and the fact that we are missing our live sports right now, I thought it would be a good idea to revisit a great baseball story full of amazing characters. And this documentary is awesome. If focuses on the story of an independent minor league baseball team, the Portland Mavericks, which captured not only Oregon's imagination, but the country's imagination back in the mid-70s. 
They were led by their owner, former actor Bing Russell. They went from a laughing stock to the mountaintop before their time in Portland was forced to come to an end. It's a remarkable story. Uh, and if Russell sounds familiar, Bing Russell, uh, the actor, was also the father of Kurt Russell, who is featured prominently in this documentary as well, and who also played and worked for the team. So you get to see a lot of people you recognize. It's a lot of cool characters. So definitely check out that movie before you listen to this um, or use it as a nice companion piece. It's definitely worth the effort. And to help me cover this amazing documentary and discuss the current state of baseball, I brought on the author of the great book on the baseball stadium experience, Rally Caps, Rain Delays, and Racing Sausages, my buddy, Mr. Eric Kabakoff. Uh, be sure to pick up his book, which is now available on paperback and Kindle. We will get to my conversation with Eric in just a moment. But first, uh, just a quick plea from me to help this pod, the Nomcast, by giving us a glowing five-star review and subscribe to us so you don't miss any of our awesome review episodes. All right, let's get to it. Here it is, author Eric Kabakoff and our review of the battered bastards of baseball. Give a listen. All right, on the line, he is the author of Rally Caps, Rain Delays, and Racing Sausages, a baseball fan's quest to see the game from a seat in every ballpark. It is available now on paperback and Kindle. It is Eric Kabakov. How are you, sir? Hi, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Good, man. Obviously, you know, I'm a fan of the book. I've been to some of your signings here in Connecticut. Uh, you know, you did a great job with the book. So congratulations on that. I know it's it's old hat to you now. Uh, wh- when did that come out now? Uh, the end of 2013. Yeah. In the World Series. Is there anything uh, in, like an update to that that you're like itching to do or any other stadiums that you've done? Because obviously for anyone who doesn't know, it's basically, you know, going around to how many did you end up at the time? 36 stadiums? I think it was uh, the time was, I think, 34. OK, 34. Yeah. And that was over, obviously, basically the span of your your life. So because it was I, right. <laughs> yeah. So have you seen any of uh, the newer ones? Is there anything that you add or do you do you scratch that itch somewhere, either on Twitter or somewhere else? Yeah. For a while, I was going to ballparks. I do a couple of year after the book came out and I would blog about the trips, sort of like uh, online chapter extensions to the book. Um, I stopped that a couple of years ago uh, after a trip to Fenway. I figured, OK, I'm good. I'm done. Um, I've had it. That was in 2018, uh, the last time I did it. Um, I actually I was able to go to the Brave Stadium, mm-hmm. uh, the, the new one, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, right after they opened. and last month in fact three weeks ago i was supposed to be in dallas to go to the new ranger stadium in arlington oh okay Um, and i booked the trip in january said nothing will stop me from going and guess what (laughs) something stopped me um i'm supposed to go with uh four friends actually and we were all going to go and we've been to a bunch of ballparks together as well uh so that's on hold like everything else right now of course Uh, i hope to add that in time um that's the only current soon to be current ballpark since it's technically not open yet that I have not been to along with uh, Minneapolis. I still have not been to the target field to target field. I shouldn't say the target field um, that opened after the book came out and I have not made it back. Um, so that's definitely on my list also. 
Yeah, I always thought that was a uh, an odd move on their part to go non-dome, to go back outdoors in Minnesota. I would love to talk to someone who's there uh, opening day uh, and and seeing some of those conditions. I mean, we've gotten through it with Coors Field, so I'm sure it couldn't be too much worse. But my goodness, uh, Minnesota oh, spring. In Minnesota in late March in a, in a baseball game. Right. And I don't really have to worry too much about October baseball. Sure. <laughs> so that hasn't been an issue so much for them. Um, so that's not too much there, but really early in the season. Yeah. I mean, uh, early in the season is when you go to places like Texas, you know, and try to get right. there before the heat does. I, I actually went to Houston on opening day of 2011 mm. and at noon, it was 101 degrees. I'm like, are oh. you kidding me? I did everything I possibly could to get a cooler day. Um, uh, I couldn't have gone any earlier. Yeah. Um, sometimes you just can't do much. Ouch. Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to say before you said 2011, I was like, oh, are you the guy banging the trash cans? But that, is, isn't that the amazing part about this year is that with no, with all this going on, don't the Astros get the best mulligan you could possibly imagine in terms of like the, the heat that they were going to get coming into the season? And obviously for, for even the little bit of spring training was there. I was talking about them cheating. Ah. So Remember good. when that was all? That was a great thing to talk about, and everybody talked about the Astros. God, that feels like a million years ago now. I know we had a villain. I was excited for it. It gives uh, a little bit of life into to Major League Baseball right now. Yeah, as a Yankee fan, I'm always glad when there's a team that's a villain that's not the Yankees. Sure. Yeah, you're a villain for a different reason. You're not uh, out <laughs> now cheating, uh, just financially booming, and uh, you know after a an amazing amazing display i mean as a mets fan i'm envious of obviously the stack that came through your farm system at the right time to to bring those yankees dynasties together i i I, you know even for how good like teams like tampa bay do every year with their farm systems or any of those things it just doesn't hold a candle to what the yankees were able to put together in those years so for how Angry I was in 2000 when the Yankees beat the Mets in the World Series. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to to stop a, a freight train like that. So it's incredible. And obviously, I knew you were a Yankees fan, and so it's incredible when we're, I'm watching this movie, uh, the Battered Bastards of Baseball, that uh, I wanted to come on, have you come on and discuss with me. Of course, of course, this movie had to start with a Yankees dynasty, like a. Obviously, the the Lou Gehrig era. So you're talking what the uh, late 30s uh, at this point, 40s? Yeah, it was the mid 30s, I believe, because he said yeah. it was, uh, like 36 to 42 or something. He was uh, he was he was friends with Lefty Gomez. Right. Yeah, which is incredible already. So you're getting, you know, uh, Lou Gehrig uh, gives Bing Russell uh, the his final home run bat. You know, uh, he's working for the team at the right time in this amazing section of Yankees history. Uh, and obviously, like you said, he's friends with Lefty Gomez. It's unreal. But for people who you know haven't watched this movie yet, I definitely recommend watching it. I hope you enjoy it. I know you said you had watched it previously before I discussed uh, talking to you about this because uh, I believe the movie came out in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. So it's been a while on that. And in fact, because as I was watching, I don't know if you had the same thought. A lot of people have kind of said like, Oh, this is kind of like a real life bad news bears, and it has so much uh, appeal from like just a, a personality standpoint that people are like, oh, this should be like a movie. This should be like a real movie. This should be like some kind of story. And of course, uh, I read that uh, 
Justin Lin, who uh, did, I think, the last four or five. Uh, I know he did Fast and Furious 3 through 6, I believe. Uh, he acquired the rights like almost immediately after his movie was released. And they still haven't, it's still listed as in development, but they do want to make this into a movie. You know, I thought I saw it years ago and it was called Major League. You know, <laughs> it was very, a little different, but I really thought of Major League while I was watching it, particularly um, with their, I think it was a center fielder, Reggie Thomas. Yeah. Uh, there was a little bit of footage of him. He had speed and flair, as they said, and he was their star. And you see him sliding around the bases. I, I was like, that's Willie Mays Hayes right there. Yeah. You know, that, that's him, that, that, this guy off the street who became a star with, the t- with his team. Yeah. yeah, especially that story, which I absolutely loved about Thomas, that where they were like, he lived a block away, but he needed a car to bring him to the stadium. And they're like, why is why does he get that? They're like, he needs that. And it's like, yeah, that's that old, you know, kind of like superstar thing. Even for an independent league team uh, in the 70s, you still get to be a star and still get to, you know, ride this wave of this i was amazed by the story i mean for anyone who didn't see it i mean this movie has everything i mean you have an an owner who is a hollywood veteran who is on bonanza for over a decade uh you know was also in the magnificent seven some of these classic films as well He's the father to Kurt Russell, which I, we were going back and forth about. I know you have a, <laughs> a funny way of looking uh, at Kurt Russell, which we can get to in a sec. But, I mean, the man dominated the 80s. Uh, he's an incredible actor. Um, and, in fact, obviously, his family lineage is all over this movie. I don't know if you saw, but uh, the director, uh, both directors, it's a, it's a brother tandem. Uh, they are his nephews. They are Kurt Russell's nephews. And then uh, the uh, also the person who does the music for this movie, the music, the composed music, is also Kurt Russell's nephew. Did so you basically, know his grands, one of his grandsons was a guy named Matt Franco, who I believe played for yes, the Yes, played for the Mets. I yeah. saw it. I, they listed that in the movie, and I was like, this is incredible. Uh, it's it's got it, they have so many tentacles. I mean, the uh, I believe Kurt Russell also has family that. Either it's Bing or both, obviously, uh, has the Diamondbacks, I believe, has like uh, either GMs or ownership stuff in the Diamondbacks, too. So, like, their family's just baseball through and through, obviously, besides being Hollywood through and through. So, it's a pretty amazing story to read. One of the greatest things that I saw early in the film was that this guy, Bing Russell, this actor in Hollywood, uh, he knew so much about baseball that he made training videos with his son, with Kurt. Yes. And videos, I, I, I say video, they were actually films at the time. Sure. Were used in actual major league clubhouses to yeah. teach major leaguers how to pivot, how second baseman how to pivot and, and keep bow to the ground, et cetera, et cetera. And, it's, and Kurt described it as this deep well of knowledge that his father just had about baseball. Yeah. Uh, so deep that actual major leaguers were learning from him. Which yeah. Is incredible. Yeah, which is all, all more. <laughs> saddening when you see how this story unfolds of just the ultimate fan turns into the ultimate owner of you know a team that isn't even in the majors and yet it still had to come to this you know kind of uh disheartening conclusion uh that we'll get to in a moment but i mean but like you said i mean you you got bing russell is such a personality He's the absolute per- perfect person, a person who goes from Hollywood where it's like it can obviously be over the top and weird and 
everything else about it and then goes to portland which my god <laughs> one of the most uh kind of like maverick spirit pardon the pun with the the name of the team but like the maverick spirit uh the independent spirit basically a hippie culture blue collar hippie culture up there uh it's it's such a perfect storm for when Bing comes to town. Uh, and what's interesting, Andrew, is that he also came to town right after they lost their team. That was yes. the Portland Beavers had been there for 70 years, I believe. Was it that long? Something like that. And uh, so uh, they, they were an institution, but they were starting to lose money over a period of time. And they left to go to Spokane, I believe. Yes. So after all this time, they just, they lost their team and it was a triple A team. So it was, almost based almost majorly quality players you know uh, they were uh, very close to the majors so high quality baseball and then he comes in and he's going to replace them with an independent league team of nobodies right and they laughed at him they said my god and then they had the sport two these two sports writers from the era were interviewed in the movie and they thought, <laughs> yeah. he, was out of, they, they thought he was out of his mind uh, yeah. to trying to, to try to replace this team with with this this joke this collection of jokes basically yeah uh, but Obviously, you know, as we know from watching the film, the the joke was on them for how wildly successful they were out the gate. But I I love the the thought process behind this, the the collection of people from the front office all the way through the players and the staff. Everything was so calculated to make a team be kind of this popular, you know, unique juggernaut. Uh, that it became for what was it a four-year run that they had I mean I don't understand I don't and you actually might know more than me because I actually weirdly enough for how big a baseball fan I've never been to the Hall of Fame and uh, I don't and I didn't know this story obviously until I watched the documentary and do you know if any of that stuff especially with how this shook out if any of that stuff is in the hall I mean, because besides the fact that uh, the catcher that they had, Swami, uh, tried to lay claim that he was the first uh, professionally signed left-handed catcher, that his mitt should be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, this movie has, uh, this team, I should say, uh, had the first female GM that I've ever heard of, the first Asian GM, who was a GM at 22, uh, you know, and, and this is all in four years. <laughs> it's insane. And then obviously they broke all the attendance records for, for minor league baseball. I mean, how is this story not bigger? How did they not have like a small wing in, in the Hall of Fame? I, I don't they understand. They made it part of a special all. exhibit at one time. You know, I, I don't sure. know. Um, but uh, certainly it, it, they're, they're deserving of some space there, I guess, as a small part of it. Um, because they're the spirit of baseball. They're the essence of baseball. The people who came, yes. these are guys who came in literally off the street. They were open tryouts for the team. Um, half of them had pop bellies. All of them had great facial hair. It was 1973. Unreal. Uh, unreal facial hair there. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because all the talented players would go would go to major league teams in the draft. Yes. So there was really no other way for them to get uh, bodies to fill those positions. And they got a few cast-offs um, later on. Jim Bouton um, came. Love the Jim Bouton part of this. And uh, he was out of the major leagues. He was with the Yankees at the tail end of their dynasty. Of course, he wrote ball four and got yeah. a lot of infamy from that. Um, he may well have been blackballed um, for that book, but uh, he's also toward the end of his career at that point, too. 
yeah. uh, back to the majors, I think it was 1978. So eight years after leaving the, uh, after being, after being disappeared from the majors, uh, he, uh, he made a comeback. And in between that time, he showed up with his team in Portland. Um, and they were soulmates, I guess, the way he described it. Yeah. You know, they were a bunch of misfits, just like he was. Um, and they played for love at the game. They certainly didn't do it for the money. They all made no. that very clear because there was no money to be made um, in, in that scenario. Uh, and they they had something to prove. And what I, I also thought was really interesting that they were the only independent league team. So they were playing all these affiliated teams, all these teams that were affiliated with major league teams. They had you know the, the matching uniforms and sometimes no facial hair, although, again, 1973, maybe not. But <laughs> they, uh, you know, they, they basically went against the corporate teams. And they had a chip on their shoulder because we're not going to let them beat us. But the corporate teams like, we're sure as hell not going to let them beat us. You know, right. so they had a target on their back. because, And the playing got raised to a higher level on yeah. the field, it seems. Uh, so it, it led to maybe some more exciting baseball. These guys had nothing to lose. I mean, after this, this, after this, there was no other team to go play for. If you're 36 years old and you were an English high school English teacher, as one of them was, yeah, um, you know, there, you go back to teaching high school English. You know, there's no other baseball to be played after this. So they they went for broke and they they captured the the spirit uh, of the city really, which is harder to do when when in other minor league teams and other minor league cities, the players are more fluid because they're moving up and down. The major league teams don't care about the successes of the, of their minor league teams. Right. Right. They just want the best possible team. Uh, for their on-field major league product. So yeah. uh, players go up, players go down. And I think at one point they mentioned that major uh, toward the end of the season, the major league clubs would actually send down their high-caliber players to try just to beat these guys, Yeah, uh, which is pretty incredible. Sort of ringers. It was like a Simpsons episode, you know. They were <laughs> there to try to beat these clowns. Uh, just fascinating. Yeah, it's completely the opposite of what goes on now, for sure. I mean, with between September call-ups and some some of these, even right beforehand, if you want to get somebody on a playoff roster, you're put bringing people up, at, you know, right after the All Star break or into August, and you know, it, everything is a jigsaw puzzle in service to the major league teams. And, you know, you would see people who would basically like, oh, their team is in the playoffs and the minors. Oh, well, we need them now. Your star player. Let's go. We had an injury. You know, it doesn't matter. So, you know, you're right. It's the complete opposite. And I never really thought of it that way. And obviously you're seeing in the 70s. It does suck for, for the viewing public. I mean, there's nothing to grab onto. There's, you know, they try to make it work in these these areas that don't have a professional team, of course. So they think, oh, you're so starved to see either the stars of tomorrow or or just even have anything in your town. I mean, I, I'm coming from a, and, you know, obviously, you know, I'm coming from a Connecticut perspective where, you know, we're a heartbeat away from New York or a heartbeat away from Massachusetts. We see all the fun they're having. And then all we get is the occasional minor league team that'll come through and then for a while, we had a couple of independent league ball teams as well, uh, which, you know, tried to, you know, nothing will hold a candle to this story. So I don't want to make any comparisons. But I mean, uh, just in when we had the Bridgeport Bluefish here, you know, Tommy John was their manager and they tried to make a big deal of that. Uh, you would get these, uh, you know, reti basically retired veteran 
uh, or sometimes castaway pieces. Like I remember it was a big deal. Like the Long Island Ducks are more known for signing these ex ball players all the time. Like these retired. I was like, oh man, Edgardo Alfonso's coming to my town. Let's go see him. You know, like uh, I gotta gotta pop up and see that. But I remember uh, the Bluefish even had like a like a Pete Rose day or something like that, where Pete Rose came in, signed autographs or whatever. Uh, so they always have to kind of pull these stunts a little bit. And it's obviously some of the hallmarks are there from this era and, and, and obviously what happened with this team. But man, all, all of baseball has changed with that. I mean, there's still the fact that they went from one independent league ball team back then to now, I believe they said something like 80 are now across the country now, or I think uh, at the time of the documentary. So what do you think of the transition from that period to now with how the minor league system is and, and how independent league ball kind of affects that now versus then? Well, independent league ball is closer to the spirit of what the Portland Mavericks had. Yeah. You know, where you need some gimmicks to bring people in. You need uh, to sign a Jose Canseco when he's 62 or whatever <laughs> you know, they, they happen to do. And then some of the other teams, like you, you mentioned New Haven, um, the New Haven Ravens, who were around yes. when I was in high school. You know, I, I would go to their games. So uh, I. And the, uh, the players would kind of come, come through, and you'd, you'd see who'd stick on the major league club, and you could say, hey, I saw him play. Or, you know what, I might have seen him play. You right. know, I don't remember. I have no idea. Um, and uh, none of those teams lasted very long. And in the Northeast, you, you see the teams kind of last a few years and then kind of move somewhere else within the Northeast. Yeah, uh, was what what I've been seeing, you know, for the past twenty five years or so. And uh, the independent league teams, you know, listen, nothing lasts forever. And sometimes it's a ballpark issue. Sometimes it's a location issue. Sometimes it's just uh, something that the team runs its course in its neighborhood. But I think that uh, they certainly serve an essential purpose. And it's hard to bring a family of four, if not impossible, to bring a family of four to a Yankee game now. Of course, yeah. uh, when when there is baseball. You know, and, and how much money and how much everything is, everything that's involved in getting there and, and spending money and, and everything. Uh, you go to a minor league game, you can take the kids, you know, for an afternoon without having to get a second mortgage. Um, they can get up close to the players without fear of being thrown out of the ballpark. You know, they, there is, there's a different um, attitude. And those guys are there. Yeah, they're there to uh, to try to get a paycheck and try to move up and try to get a better paycheck. A lot of them, and um, a lot, of, a large percentage is there for the love of the game. You know, um, the, the Crash Davises uh, yes. who, who are there. Um, they're there for the love of the game, and they're the ones who who keep minor league baseball um, strong. Yeah, uh, they're the ones who keep it spinning, keep it moving. Uh, they're the, they're the beating heart of it. Um, those guys. And um, so I think the independent league definitely has its place because you can get away from the fluidity of the players. You, you can you actually get to know the team a little bit. Um, they're your guys, just like the Portland Mavericks captured the spirit of Portland. And this was Portland's own team. Um, this, this was their, this was their guys. This wasn't a bunch of guys who some of them might move up. Some of them might move down, whatever. Some of them were there for a couple of years. I mean, they got to see Kurt Russell play, I guess, third base, you know, um, in the initial season. Um, you know, that's uh, pretty amazing stuff that that they got to have that opportunity to do it. And then in this particular case, the team was writ large to a national level. Joe Garagio featured them on his program. 
Um, and it was the first time ever that he had, they had so much footage, they had to do two shows. Yeah. So they were elevated um, to uh, a national, having a national profile. Um, you know, they were the bad news bears come to life, as you put it earlier. Yeah, and I, and I actually think your major league comp is actually probably more on the nose than the bad news bears thing, uh, because, I mean, a team that just probably looked on paper like it wasn't going to succeed you know, all these like either has-beens or, uh, you know, a team that never won or any of this type of spirit and all of a sudden, you know, chasing a pennant. And uh, to be honest, that to me was like the saddest thing of kind of all this that they never, for all their efforts, uh, as you said, you know, they would have all these, the target on their back, they'd have, uh, you know, baseball players coming down to play them to try to knock them out, you know, this amazing story of how they they just tried to get stopped at every turn. I wished that this story ended where they at least won one of the pennants in the four years that they did. But sadly, uh, that was the one thing that didn't occur. But man, yeah, I, I love the construction of this team. I love every thought on the personalities. If For anyone who doesn't think that this team was full of characters, all you need to do is watch the end of this movie when they do kind of the where are they now of a lot of the players and people who worked out for this team. Uh, and to, I, I think I listed just a few and it, it made me laugh so hard. I hope you enjoyed them too. But the where are they now section includes an FBI informant, a manager of a prison baseball team after a failed run for governor, <laughs> a, a the creator of Big League Chew, which holds a excellent place in my heart and the directorial success of Todd field, who was the bat boy. Uh, he directed in the bedroom, little children. He was an actor and eyes wide shut and twister. This team had everything you, know, you could you possibly want. You could possibly have the FBI informant. And it's funny because earlier we were talking about Reggie Thomas. Yeah, that's him. And we were saying, well, why would he need a car to get across the street? And now maybe it was for security. <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe for sure. Then, you know, this is a man who vanished in 1984. Uh, he may be dead. He might be, you know, uh, in the witness protection program. I who knows? Yep. Um, yeah. Maybe he needed that car. I mean, who knows now? If there's no way to know, we need another documentary to find out. See, that's the thing. There are some of these stories with some of these guys that I was like, oh my god, they should get a story by themselves. The fact that the uh, the manager who you know the arc of his story is that he's stuck behind Brooks Robinson in the Baltimore organization for you know a decade, and then just you know opens up a bar in Portland, uh, you know, just kind of like this defeated ex ball player comes to prominence being the manager of this team again. And then once the team folds, he go he tries to run for governor, goes to jail, and is ends up being the team of the prison team in jail. How, how is that not a fucking... How is that not a story? How well, is that not a movie? Thing, if they want to do a last dance part two, uh, uh, they should look at this uh, and, and see if they get the rights to this from... Uh, from Justin Lin and <laughs> see if they can make a 10 parter on it because man, yeah, a lot of stories in there that they probably didn't even get to, you know, we were talking about Kurt Russell and uh, you know, Tango on cash. This, this guy's, in, you know, Tango on cash. He's married to Gold. Well, I guess he was domestic, uh, the equivalent of marriage with Goldie Hawn. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, an iconic Hollywood actor. 
Um, he's a child actor. I mean, for God's sake, he appeared in Gilligan's Island as Jungle Boy. And now he was playing the infield for this team in 1973, this minor league team. And vice president. Yeah, of course. Yeah, he's, he's, he's done everything. Yep. Yep. And um, I think he may have had a minor league career, a brief one, mm. uh, apart from this team. But uh, and, uh, I think a short Well, that's time. why they were in Oregon, right? He was playing for Walla Walla or somebody, I think. like, And Bing was having a good time watching his kid until Portland lost their team or something. I think you're right. Yeah, I think he may have been up there and it was already up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, yeah. He had no uh, being at that point. His acting career was basically done. Um, it's funny when they show all the clips uh, of him acting, uh, every one of them was a Western. And he, he's, yes. and Kirk said he got shot over 100 times. And you see all this <laughs> montage of him getting murdered um, in movie <laughs> after movie. Um, yeah. And when I Googled him afterward, I was just curious about his acting career. He also was slated to be the monkey's manager in the monkey's TV show. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And uh, he, they decided to cut the part and they edited mm. it down. So he had a very small role in the monkey's pilot. And if you can find an episode of that today, he's in it. That's you know, incredible. That's incredible. This guy from Bonanza and the monkeys and a million Westerns uh, ended up owning a minor league baseball team in Portland. That was a national sensation for four years. It's just an unbelievable story. I mean, watching the footage of Bing, I understand kind of this cult around this guy. I mean, you know, he just he he's he's a sensitive guy. He knows how to talk to people, whether in like he's a bigger than life personality in the media, knew how to orchestrate all those things, but also had this beating heartbeat of a fan and a little boy who just loves a game. And I think he even referred to uh, Jim Bouton as like he's always just going to be a little kid he's just going to be a little boy and like so which is wild to hear an owner talk about a player like that especially a player with the kind of pedigree that jim bowden had uh over his career but he's right though you need it the, this whole team as you've said many times it in it embodied what we feel as fans and kind of like your book too like i was so intrigued by that because I, I i think to a man every buddy of mine has always said like oh we need to do a road trip we need to go to every stadium we need to do this and you actually completed it that's like i remember uh because you're friends with my wife i remember when i just heard her tell me about this i was so intrigued and that's why i needed to like hear your book and see your book and everything else and go to your appearances it was incredible uh story to me and i was so fascinated and i think that's when they did the interviews with the people from portland when they heard about like Bing or when they talked about these things, it's so hard to get a team that feels like you. I mean, even for the major league franchises, the, the, the all time teams, you know, some of them feel like they're your team. Like even for like growing up, I don't know if you have one in your heart somewhere, like if it's the 96 Yankees or, you know, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a historic team, you know, uh, an iconic team, obviously for, for Bing Russell, you know, for the, the Lou Gehrig teams of the, of the mid to late thirties. I mean, yikes, uh, you know, the, you can't get much better than those years. So, you know, for me, obviously it's the 86 Mets with all the personality there. I mean, there are these teams, weirdly enough, when I think about baseball, I think of the the players with a true sense of personality, like stars, but like relatable stars. 
like and and players with flaws and and they seem like real people now it's so boring with a lot of the superstars in major league baseball it's starting to turn a little bit it's very polished it's very corporate i mean for how amazing mike trout is i think most of the country doesn't care and it's Sad to say, he's basically our modern Mickey Mantle, and we're just kind of like, oh yeah, he's great. Uh, when's he going to be in the playoffs or World Series? Uh, Mark yeah. Trout played in New York, and he was a drunk, and people are looking at him a lot differently if he yeah. still had the same stats that he has now. For and sure, now, not being a drunk, presumably. Um, yeah, you know, so I think there's a lot of that to it too. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Does Major League Baseball have a boring image problem. Could they learn from this story? Should they have learned from this story that's now almost 50 years old? I mean, to me, like I was saying, the 86 Mets, there's books on them with, you know, having women in the in the locker rooms, you know, and, uh, you know, having sex between innings, you know, like uh, the, the, you have the famous Red Sox teams that, you know, the, the beer and chicken wings teams, you know, that are like, you know, getting drunk during the games, you know, uh, and they were winning world series. I mean, there's all these teams that have these, you know, personalities. I'll, I hope you can identify with this on some level. My favorite player for time growing up was Mackie Sasser. Are you familiar with Mackie Sasser? Of I am. Yeah. The man couldn't throw. He was a catcher who couldn't throw, throw back, back to the, the pitcher. pitcher. Right. And yeah, he yet, every time. And it cost him his job, cost him his career. I know. And yet he was a star in New York. He wasn't even the starting catcher. Like he was had to fight it out with Charlie O'Brien, who's like a serviceable veteran over the years. It was weird. And, you know, and yet <laughs> on those bad, you know, late eighties, early nineties, uh, you know, Mets teams, I loved Mackie Sasser. <laughs> so, you know, there is something to say about personality, letting people be themselves, stop homogenizing everything and the fans endear themselves to these people what do you what do you think about that well uh you asked if uh, major league baseball may have learned anything from the story of the portland mavericks and i think the answer is a resounding no mm. uh, 50 years later they have learned nothing you know everything is whitewashed you've got guys like goose gossage screaming about mm-hmm. uh the sanctity of the game and how dare they flip the bat you know, these yeah. guys like that are never happy about anything. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, you know, the game has become uh, very white and very Latin. Yeah. Um, there are very few African-American baseball players anymore. You had yeah. a lot more in the 70s, uh, in the 80s. Um, it's just, it's not an area where you see a lot of African-Americans anymore. Um, so you've got a different kind of, uh, uh, you've got different kinds of players in there that are not the same as what we grew up with. Sure. Um, from their backgrounds and um you know so i think they're 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 told that they have to follow a certain corporate line now um they have to do it for the state of the game as a la goose gossage and the old timers or they can't uh, and this is not a new policy but they can't shave they have to shave their hair uh, right. for, for the yankees um and uh that's very corporate that's that's always been there you know for years um yeah poor but, johnny damon <laughs> yes, poor Johnny Damon. Poor Don Manning. He got benched oh, in a couple games because that mullet. How dare he? How dare he? <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, there's not a lot of uh, personality. Um, they don't market the personalities they do have. 
Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of times too, the, the, with the time difference, you know, Mike Trout and, 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 and before him, Barry Bonds played all the games on the West coast. Yeah. Uh, the East coast didn't ever really get to see them. Um, so there was a lot of that. Plus, you know what? There's a lot more competition now. You've got um, higher octane sports that yep. people will follow more. You know, baseball is more cerebral. Um, it, it's for sitting there and bullshitting for, for three hours. That's what you <laughs> do at a baseball game. You drink beer and you bullshit and yep. you talk about whatever. You know, now people look at their phones between innings or, or during the game, uh, really, um, and they want the, the higher intensity. They want to see NBA. They want to see, you know, in your face like the NFL or whatever, constant action. And you, you see it in these in, the, in these ballparks that have been built in the last 20 years. There's kid zones and um, any kind of thing to try to entertain fans that just to keep them in the ballpark, just to get them in the ballpark and make it a full-day experience rather than a baseball game. You know, when was the last time you saw somebody keeping score with a program or a scorecard at a, at a baseball game? You used to see that a lot. Yeah. You know? And it's just a way to pass the time while you're sitting there and, and, and to, to track what's going on. And um, the slowness of it is not something that's, you know, a fa- in favor of the younger generation or favored by the younger generation. And uh, it's a real problem that baseball has that their fan base is getting older and whiter. And it has been for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Having fewer African Americans on the field does not help that at all, um, and a huge Latin infusion means that they have a lot of fans. Maybe um, in certain parts of the country, uh, it'll be a higher uh, turnout than in others. But also throughout Latin America, their baseball is very big, and the teams may even be bigger in some cases. You know, right. there's talk in, uh, uh, whenever there's talk about an expansion franchise, Mexico City comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, huge population, although the altitude is higher than Colorado, so I don't know how that would even work. Yeah, you look at the ball and you get a 600 foot home run. Right. Um, you know, if that's the case, and of course a lot of other issues. But so no, I mean I don't think they've learned anything. If anything, they, they've gotten more sanitized and homogenized, and um, the product may be better statistically, but the characters aren't there anymore. The characters are not celebrated; they're suppressed. Yeah. Steel Puig. You know, he's, he's, he's still a free agent, you yeah. know? Um, I mean, there's other reasons for that too, of course. Of course. Um, but um, the characters, you just don't see teams like the 2004 Red Sox really yep. right now. And when you do, they're celebrated. You know, when these newer teams come up and, uh, and they're like, oh, look at this team, you know, they're, they've got a bunch of characters on them. It's because it's so, so rare yeah. that that happens, that the team is going to be celebrated because – uh, the media needs something, and baseball needs something to sell itself. Right. Uh, and those chances are, are more and more infrequent these days. Yeah, it saddened me so much growing up, and I know he ended up having his own uh, demons and issues later. But uh, the first time I really realized that after the glaze came off my eyes from being a kid and loving baseball for just baseball, watching everything, consuming everything, just loving it for the game, once uh, I got to be a teenager or into my early 20s and watching Jose Reyes all the, all the time, I remember the conversation around him just made me so sick uh, just to be like, you know, he had big personalities, waving his hands and he's, you know, cheering himself on and he's got such vibrancy and spirit. They were like, this needs to stop. And I was like, what? He's the only person I want to watch on this field. He's pure electricity, you know, uh, and they're like, oh, he's showing the, the other team up. 
Right. Who cares? There's a certain attitude of assimilate or die. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's hurtful to the overall product because, uh, you know, a lot of players from Latin America have a lot more uh, enthusiasm and they show it on the field as part of the way they play. Yeah. And when they try to, when they, when they come here, this is how they play and they get yelled at and shouted down yeah. uh, for reasons that may not necessarily have to do with baseball. You know, that uh, I don't know we want to get into on this podcast. I know, right. <laughs> um, but uh, there's, a, there's a lot of factors in all that. And uh, the game has, has changed, but I don't know that it's changed necessarily for the better in that regard. No, I completely agree. And, you know, and the state of even independent ball, you said like how a lot of times, you know, they're kind of doing a lot of the same spirit that, that Bing has in, in, in their business model. Unfortunately, it's become so sad even for them like that. If if baseball as a product is kind of like failing on the major league level in terms of ratings or just attendance or or where the age level is going, as you were saying, or or the type of audience, man, I remember going to some of those independent league games and it is uh, a freak show. It's uh, it's a cartoon. I mean, between, you know. I can handle a dollar beer night where things get out of control, but uh, some of the other peripheral aspects do not age well. And some are still going. I remember uh, one of the last uh, independent league team uh, when the new Haven County Clippers uh, replaced the new Haven Ravens. uh, They had, it was not only a dollar draft night, uh, but it was also um, uh, little people wrestling. Uh, that they had out after the game. Like, it's not enough. It's like, oh, it's fireworks night. It's like, no, we're setting up a wrestling ring with, you know, uh, you know, smaller people being exploited uh, for for all these things. And God, it, that, especially now, like, it didn't feel good then. It really doesn't feel good now uh, to even have that going on. And thank goodness I haven't seen really one of those since. But man, uh, even those... It's so sad. I mean, uh, the Bridgeport Bluefish thing was a little bit better with Tommy John and Pete Rose and some of these people trying to to seize capture some of these players that I loved growing up. But man, it it could get pretty sad there too. And that's why this was such a nice story to watch. And it almost made me think: Is there an opportunity, especially in the pandemic, where we're missing baseball right now? You know, no sports are being played. But of course, you know, baseball didn't even get to start. The NBA is trying to finish while major leagues have been started. Is there an opportunity here for like some kind of, you know, traveling roadshow type things? Like why has there never been like a baseball version of the Harlem Globetrotters type of thing to where, you know, or, or was there and I just wasn't, uh, you know, alive well, for it or really 20s, feeling it. Back in the twenties and thirties, they had the barnstorming uh, teams Right. Ruth and his friends would travel the country by train and playing all over the country. And of course, they even went to Japan, Mm. uh, which remains a huge baseball country. Of course. uh, You know, 100 years later. Um, And these barnstormers, you know, the the games weren't available on television um, or out of market radio. So uh, this is their this was their exposure uh, around the country. People in Tuscaloosa got to see Babe Ruth. Yeah. Um, and, uh, or California, there was no major league baseball out there, you know, so they got to see Babe Ruth and whoever else play, uh, back then and these traveling teams. But, you know, you're not going to see that now because there's just, there's not enough money in it and there's too much risk. 
You know, yeah. if one of these players should get injured there, he loses out on a $100 million potential contract, maybe. You're not going to see, you know, the star players certainly get involved in that uh, anymore. Yeah, I mean, even t- to me, though, like the retired ball players, you know, or like these people who just keep playing long after they're gone from the majors, you know, some of those people I would imagine that would kind of be a fun... Because it's not like the Harlem Globetrotters were like former basketball players that were these huge stars it was just kind of a collection of talent that made a bunch of money that challenged you know the nba for a time uh to where they kind of you know got shut down by the nba kind of acquired a lot of these people acquired the talent and shut it down because they knew that they were making so much money being this traveling road show that's the that, movie we just saw actually um in that regard there would be this team had so much success that uh baseball came in and said hey we want that and, right. um, you know, and that was the end of it, uh, pretty much, you know, and these guys didn't get a last game. Yeah. They didn't get a farewell. They didn't get a last game. They just like were informed. Okay, you're done. Yeah. I mean, and, to me, I mean, even because you're saying the risk and everything else, I mean, to me, even if you just told me like, okay, who's, uh, who's a person who's retired in the hall of fame, you know, or, or even just not even Hall of Fame, some step below or whatever, that just a widely, rega- highly regarded person uh, from the majors. Wouldn't it be awesome to just see a traveling like home run derby with some of these people that you think are like amazing? Like, I remember growing up watching like the MTV Rockin' Jocks, where it's like you would have like these, the players next to celebrities doing like these tournament stuff. You're, they're having such wild success with Peyton Manning and Tom Brady just playing golf on television. I mean, it'd be astounding and it would give kind of like this second life to some of the Major League Baseball players, but it would also make Major League Baseball players look fun again. I don't know. I'm just spitballing because I miss baseball and I know that you're pro- I'm, I'm almost like pinning you in a corner, trapping you down with uh, terrible ideas that I have. But I was so well, inspired by this that's movie. That's a good idea because if you think about it, somewhere in the world today, Julio yes. Franco went two for three. Oh, yes, he did. You know? He and, wakes uh, up and does. I don't know where he's playing right now, but he probably got two hits at the age of sixty-seven. Because Absolutely, the man was never going to retire, and I'm sure he's still playing right now. Um, and there actually was—I um, don't remember the name. I believe it was a senior professional league, uh, senior professional baseball league, or something like that. Mm. Close to thirty years ago, um, lasted a couple of years, where guys who were four, five, six years out of retirement came in and they they would play baseball. Right. Um, and the interest clearly was not there. Um, you know, for a novelty act, you got the, you know, you got the band back together maybe for a couple games, right. a, a novelty act. But um, uh, I think when you see uh, a 58 year old former baseball player for the fourth time, okay, you know, the novelty is over a little bit. Right. But yeah. I mean, old timers day. That would be great. You know, and so if it would come being, get people closer to the fans again, get players closer to the fans and being fans closer to the game, um, you know, rather than spending $400 to sit 8,000 feet from home plate, yeah. um, you know, at a major league park um, and uh, have to check your phone because you can't see the scoreboard because you're behind it. Yes. Uh, you know, yeah. or something to that effect. Um, why not? If you could do something like that, a goodwill ambassadors, a goodwill ambassadors traveling show. And you could call it the bingo long traveling all-stars. You know, maybe yeah. uh, bring them back, you know, and they could be part of it. Uh, do another movie. Yeah, I, I, I would be all for it. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, speaking as a person in Connecticut who doesn't get 
uh, a ton of baseball. Although I, I will say very nice things about the Hartford Yard Goats. Uh, they have a very nice stadium uh, and people should check them out. Uh, but, you know, and especially they built it brand new. It's gorgeous and very family friendly, as you were saying. It does feel like you're at the mall and then a baseball game broke out uh, for half of these stadiums. Um, but unfortunately, that's kind of what they need to do. So what do you think now that uh, you know this story, you've seen the documentary and you see where it goes? What do you think the lasting legacy of this movie is or this team, I should say, you know, is over time? That people can have fun playing baseball. You know, they these guys played, like I've said before, for the love of the game. Um, and this was their last shot to make something good. And they did. Uh, it, it was a terrible redemption. Um, you know, these guys, a bunch of has-beens, never was, and almost were, almost was as, and once was, and like Jim Bouton was probably maybe the only once were uh, that was there. But uh, Reggie Thomas, or, or I, I can't remember, Larry Colton, I think was the Pulitzer Prize winner, if I have that name right. Um, I, yeah, I didn't write that one down, but I believe that's right. And, uh, you know, any number of these other guys, they were all saying, the ones who they were able to interview at the end, in the movie, they were all saying that that was one of the best times of their lives, um, yeah. which I thought was remarkable. You know, uh, these guys who've had 40 years, of 45 years of living since that period still talk about that period of time as one of the highlights of their lives because uh, the camaraderie was there. They were all in it together. Uh, they all got a good, one last good shot at doing what they loved. Uh, and um, I think that's that's the legacy of this movie. And I'm glad this movie was made because it 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 told guys like you and me the story. You know, I yes. never would have known the story. I mean, they had a national profile in the in the early '70s. I had no idea. You know, I wasn't around then. I didn't know exactly. any of that. Um, and uh, you know, one thing that amazed me, I, I just want to say, uh, if you're watching this movie, I was floored by how much footage there was. Yes, but we kind of take for granted now that there's footage of everything. But until the mid '90s, not even every baseball team was even on TV. Yeah, you know, every game. Um, and I mean, growing up, I got to see the Yankees on on broadcast television. I don't know, sixty times a year, maybe. Right. Uh, left was on radio if I wanted, or take a train into the city to go see it, go see them. Um, but for a an independent league in Portland, Oregon, in 1973, there was an awful lot of film. Um, and I know that they had a national profile for a while, so that, that some of it comes from that and the attention they got. Um, but boy, there was just a lot of footage of the guys practicing and playing and uh, some of the game footage. Uh, I just wonder who, who was taking it at that time. I mean, did they know or think that they were taking it for posterity or were they taking it for training purposes? Was, was that something Bing uh, was on top of? Uh, for training purposes, I, I don't know the answer to that. It wasn't addressed in the film if it even needed to be. Um, but I just, again, we take for granted now that everything is, has video attached. Yeah. Uh, but this really did have a lot of film there and a lot of footage. And it, it really just made for a much better documentary than a bunch of guys sitting around looking at black and white photos talking about it. Yeah, or newspaper headlines or the like. But I totally agree. And I think all your assumptions seem absolutely on point i mean i would think you know between uh bing's ego the uh <laughs> you know coming from uh you know a hollywood actor uh you know obviously wanting the stage and camera and everything not only did he have a lot of uh profiles on himself or the team 
leading up to the the team even opening, but then also having, you know, uh, the fact that there was uh, camera footage on the tryouts should tell you everything. So, I mean, there's probably some local news coverage at that point, especially because it was some some uh, tryout that brought people from not only all over the country, but all over the world. Uh, you know, uh, I believe, I forgot uh, the name, uh, something Nelson, it's at the tip of my tongue, but the guy who ended up being the Rob person Nelson. who, I'm sorry? I think it was Rob Nelson. I think that's true. Uh, so the guy who ended up uh, creating Big League Chew, he came from South Africa. He saw this, uh, you know, they put it in uh, one of the baseball papers uh, uh, or magazines, uh, like maybe a sports almanac or some, some. I forgot what the, the one was at the time, but he just happened to catch it. Somebody told him and then he, you know, left Cape Town and, and went all the way to Portland just for, again, the love of the game. It's incredible uh, the type of people that they had uh, coming all around to, Some to of the try guys to interviewed, do One of them uh, said that he had driven four days. It took him four days to drive yes. across the country just to try out. And why? The love of the game. Yeah. You know, uh, they placed an ad in, was the Sporting News? Sporting News. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and that's what it was. And uh, that's how you did things back then. <laughs> you know, you yeah. could have the internet for it. And uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, the, the, the wide reach that had also, I mean, just now thinking about the reach that a printed magazine had in 1973. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, the sports illustrated coverage being a big deal. Now people wonder what sports illustrated is. Now it's just a name basically, you know, it's, it's that's exactly what it is. Time. It got gutted. It got recently acquired, I yeah. believe by a hedge fund manager or some kind of, you know, VC or something that just basically trying to capitalize on a brand at this point. Uh, it's very sad to see, uh, as obviously we're in similar age and know what Sports Illustrated meant at the time uh, and seeing what it's become. You know, um, another thing that's interesting, um, and this is related because, and I know you appreciate this because you're from the New Haven area, as I am. Um, growing up in New Haven is an unbelievable place to be a baseball fan. Yes. Um, because you have the intersection of three major fan bases and you don't have it anywhere else in the country like that no. uh, to this uh, uh, fan bases of this size at least uh and magnitude you know you've got uh north generally speaking north of new haven you have red sox fans and south you have yankee fans and then mets fans in and scattered all around which is a sizable fan base of its own yeah um and so you really get an appreciation of the different types of fandom um uh, that you don't get in places like denver or pittsburgh uh, not to put them down, um, or, or Tampa, um, because you you really see, you know, th sometimes through other people's eyes uh, what the games are like. You know, even though I was not a Mets fan, I, I saw the 86, you know, I saw all my friends who were Mets fans be ecstatic at that team, at the 86 Mets. And uh, yeah. and those same people 10 years later were pissed off when the Yankees won. <laughs> in that yes, of course. Um, and if you go to a bar in the New Haven area and you want to talk baseball with the guy next to you, you, you have to make sure which which team is a fan of first before they <laughs> them out. Yeah, you, know, uh, you don't have to do that in a lot of other parts of the country. So it's a great place to learn the game and learn about being a fan of the game. Yeah, uh, and that's something that I took with me when, um, as I grew up and as I went to other stadiums. Um, you know, being able to appreciate to go to Fenway and appreciate the Red Sox, even though I was a Yankee fan and appreciate the history of the ballpark and the stadium and all that, and then go to a place like. Um, you know, Seattle, 
which didn't have that rich history uh, as a baseball club. Uh, they had, a, they had a, a, a short peak, you know, I guess. You yeah. know, Griffey and Johnson and, and those guys, A-Rod, um, Edgar. But um, it's not the same in every city, and, and, and that's part of the charm. That's part of the charm of doing a road trip like that and seeing, in my case, major league teams, but in other cases, minor league teams. And whether you see independent leagues or, or affiliated teams, you know, I've got a friend who does baseball road trips to this day, um, and she uh, goes to minor league, doesn't discriminate. Major league, minor league, whatever it is, if it's, if it's on the route, she goes. You know, it doesn't matter. And it's really fascinating to see the passion for the game. Um, yeah. In this person's case, at least, that that goes through the major league uh, um, parks and through the minor league parks, and you know manages to come home with a bobblehead or whatever from every park, right? Uh, to have the the big bobblehead collection uh, or whatever, you know. I I myself collected shot glasses, you know, and I was pissed when I got to Minnesota and found out they didn't have any, and I have no idea if they bought <laughs> them or they were out for the season or what. But I I, I didn't get one from the, from that park. Um, but we all have our things, and uh, you know. We all uh, have ways that we, that we try to connect to the game that we love. And listen, right now, as we sit here, we miss it. Um, this is why we're talking about a six-year-old documentary about a 45-year-old uh, independent baseball team in yeah. Oregon because we miss baseball and we want it. Uh, listen, we want lots of things uh, now that um, we don't have. Uh, I think we all feel this, whether it's baseball or something else. Um, and I'm glad there are movies like this now to fill those types of voids. Yeah, I mean, The Last Dance did a lot of that for me, too. I don't know if you're a basketball fan as well, but, I mean, even if you're not, I mean, just listening to Michael Jordan and watching greatness and kind of seeing the personalities of that team that I fell in love with back in the 90s, uh, you know, I was really into, uh, you know, it was funny. I was a big fan of Horace Grant, and then it went into uh, Dennis Rodman. You can't get any crazier than there. Uh, so that whole thing. So that documentary uh, threw me for a loop. And then so I knew that uh, this was on the Netflix roster, and I, I wanted to see this. I have Icarus also. I don't know if you've seen Icarus uh, on my watch list as well about the uh, the doping scandal, the Russian doping scandal from the Olympics. Uh, so there's a bunch of good stuff on Netflix, and I desperately wanted to do this first because I'm such a baseball fan and I miss it, like you were saying. So I'm glad I can have this conversation with you. I'm glad we can kind of, you know, get some of this, uh, you know, and I'm glad to know that, you know, Bing Russell existed. I mean, the man, uh, I was captivated every time he was on the screen. I love that he uh, made Kurt Russell because I love him too. <laughs> I think that's uh, besides missing baseball. I also, I guess, miss Kurt Russell being a legendary star too. Uh, there's just probably a sliding doors moment of either him being, you know, on the Portland Mavericks for a long period of time and never being, you know, in big trouble in Little China or the thing or all the escape from movies well, in that ultimate universe he also probably won the world series with the phillies or something oh for sure um, yeah he gets drafted there's a, yeah there. totally <laughs> so i mean there's that you know it's an amazing just bing russell felt like to me it, it, he basically felt like he was everybody's dad and in a way i you kind of get that kind of feeling from him you get to see him you know in his childhood where i felt that energy and then I also feel like as a dad now I have this different type of energy towards baseball, but still have the kid in me. And yeah, Bing Russell, 
Yeah. As we were trading yawns before we started the podcast. So yeah. Oh, my absolutely. Third Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> this is the latest, probably some parents have ever stayed up. It's like nine 30 at night. So I be, I, I am sorry I've kept you asleep from from a quality nap or the uh, five minutes of television you get before you pass out as as us parents of young kids do. Uh, so, but I, I'm glad to talk to you, man. Glad to talk to a, a fellow uh, baseball fan. You know that's just suffering right now, and I, I'm glad you kind of see it from my perspective, man. Of just uh, you know, I don't know what Major League Baseball can do. At this point, I mean, obviously nothing right now in a pandemic, but I mean, just taking an opportunity to make the game more fun and inclusive and fan, like fan friendly in a different way, like make the game more appealing. I make mean, it more like, accessible, celebrate the personalities, you know, don't homogenize things. Don't scream about the way it used to be, yes. you know, um, because that's going to turn people off um, because these people don't remember that. Right. Um, and if you try to, put the square pegs in the round holes, eh, they're going to go to a different sport, you know, yeah. one one that appreciates them. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of that as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, they have such an advantage over like things like football or hockey where you, you could see their faces all the time up front and personal. You could see them, you know, uh, there's plenty of time for interviews in the dugouts and all these other things that they try to do to, to bring people in, but those can be such boring interviews too. <laughs> like all those in dugout, uh, in inning stuff that they try to do to try to bring some personalities in. They're always so blank. They're always so. They're all Tino Martinez. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, Tino Martinez was always my favorite post game interview. Yeah. Every single game, he could have hit five grand slams. He could have struck out six times. He would always say, "Well, the team gave 110 percent today. We did the best we could. Yeah, we were, we were all out there, gave it our best effort. And uh, I guess next time we'll try to do even better and get a better result." And you can look yeah. at every single interview, and basically it's some variation of that. Was what he said every single game. Oh yeah, it's the Bill Belichick effect. It's uh, it's all that where you don't want to be. Uh, headline news for the team tomorrow for them to have something to motivate them, uh, you know, to do that. But it also makes the game painfully uh, boring and homogenized. So I, I'm hoping for a little bit more personality in the future. And I appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, tell people uh, again, like where people could get your book, maybe what you're working on now, if you're doing that blog still, you know, absolutely tell the word. Well, uh, Lollicaps, Rain Delays, and Racing Sausages is available on Amazon, uh, paperback, Kindle. It's available at Barnes & Noble um, and uh, really anywhere books might be sold. If you can find a bookstore, great. Um, it, <laughs> might, it might be there. Um, and uh, I, I am not working on any projects right now. I uh, was working briefly on a, uh, on a book about raising a toddler in New York City. <laughs> um, but um, the truth is, I ran out of energy and time. Um, you know, I, I wrote a certain amount, and then as my son got more mobile, I just was not able to do it. Um, so I've got that draft sitting there, and I may go back to it at some point. By the time he's 15, I'll have a book out about how he was a toddler. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I do plan to resume uh, blogging about different ballparks. I was going to do it when I went to uh, on my aborted trip to Arlington. I was going to do an online chapter extension of my book, 
Um, I hope to do it someday at Target Field. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then just kind of see what else is out there. Um, you know, always looking for a new writing project when I have the time to do it. Um, time is scarce right now, but, you know, listen, writing is fun. Uh, baseball is fun. Writing about baseball is wonderful fun um, when I can have the opportunity to do it. Well, I appreciate the, the efforts you've done thus far, and I hope to see more from you in the future. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you.